You're listening to the NYC Media Lab podcast. I'm Justin Hendricks, Executive Director of the NYC Media Lab. This episode was recorded at the Fake News Horror Show, an event NYC Media Lab hosted on June 7th and 8th, 2018, to explore the problems of propaganda and misinformation. The Fake News Horror Show convened researchers, digital media experts, and technologists, and those concerned with the political and social implications of computational propaganda. It included a science fair of terrifying propaganda tools, some real and some imagined, but all based on plausible technologies, as well as keynotes and presentations from industry and research experts, hands-on workshops on things like deepfakes, and a series of panel discussions that explore these themes and more. One of the keynote presentations was from Clint Watts. Clint is a former FBI special agent, a U.S. Army officer, and a leading cybersecurity expert. He's also the author of the recently published Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News, which offers a detailed look at the misinformation campaigns, fake news, and espionage operations that have roiled the internet and challenged society both here in America and abroad over the last few years. Here's Clint's presentation at the Fake News Horror Show. So I'm really, really pleased uh, to introduce our keynote uh, speech this morning, uh, Clint Watts, who has uh, an amazing background, uh, was a U.S. Army officer, uh, FBI special agent, uh, military intelligence and counterterrorism background. Um, He is now a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University, uh, as well as holding um, a variety of other posts. And I think it's fair to say that he's one of the foremost experts on the issues we've been discussing today, and I think is going to give us an excellent um, sense of where things have have been, but also where things are going. Uh, Clinton told me uh, that in this book that he's written, um, there's actually a chapter that they did not publish, which was a, a bit of science fiction that was looking at the future and how manipulation campaigns might play out in the near term and how how technology might abet those things. Um, He himself has been the subjects of attacks uh, on his uh, uh, sort of personal security um, as a result of his work in this regard, was early at spotting uh, Russian efforts to interfere in U.S. democracy and in our campaign, and of course has been an important person to testify uh, to the Senate and other parts of our government about uh, Russian election interference and uh, uh, efforts in the Middle Middle East as well. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Clint Watts to give us a talk, uh, then I'll join him for a little bit of Q&A, and then we'll then open to to audience questions. We are filming this. Uh, C-SPAN is here filming it. Others of you are filming it. When we take Q&A, we're going to line up over here by this light. We'll need to ask questions into the microphone so that um, you know, the, the people out there in TV land will be able to appreciate this. Uh, so just be prepared for that, all right? And when you do ask a question, I'll ask that you identify yourself, all right? Uh, but over to Clint Watts. Or in the tradition of misinformation, misidentify yourself <laughs> yes. to somebody else. Right? So that, that's been most of my career here in recent years is uh, misidentification. And so that's kind of where I'll start today. Uh, so Justin, thanks for having me. This is where you come to meet everybody you met on Twitter, which is a, a great event. <laughs> I've, I've run into lots of people that uh, I, you would not normally uh, run into. And uh, it's actually close. I actually live in the New York City area, which most people, uh, which is convenient for me, think I live somewhere else. Um, but I'm, it's nice to only have to ride the subway to get here uh, today. And so thanks for having me. 
and uh, for doing what you do. This obviously is an alien world for me in many ways because I was in government circles for a long time. Uh, depending on the website you read, as you know, I'm a member of the deep state. And um, <laughs> if you actually read my book, you'll understand why that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, I, I have my troubles if I'm in the government service too long and I kind of have to duck out every once in a while and work on things a little bit differently. And so I'm here shamelessly uh, promoting a book that I had come out uh, called Messing with the Enemy. But it's a, a book that I've wanted to write for a long time. And uh, before uh, I testified to the Senate, I had written up this proposal and no one wanted it. And then suddenly, because no, literally I had uh, agents tell me no one cares about this Russia stuff. It sounds really boring. And so that is all switched in four years. And now um, the book is really about social media and influence. And I wanted to start off with kind of discussion of, of how I came to it. I generally did two things. I either worked in the FBI or when I wasn't with the FBI, I was working on social media and influence, but no, mostly around terrorists. So going back to about 2005, I worked at West Point as an instructor uh, at the Combating Terrorism Center. We ran projects where we were looking at the intersection of new media, then it was called the internet, uh, and, and social media after it, and how extremists would come into it. And I started working basically on my own uh, in 2010, 11, 12, 13. I started writing a blog called Selected Wisdom. That's my, why I have that goofy Twitter handle, because you can't change it you know, after you get started. Um, but it was a blog, and it was about you know, could you essentially use crowdsourcing or crowds to sort of figure out how national security threats were emerging. And when I was doing that, I would oftentimes run into the threat, meaning the enemy, and that's where the title of the book comes from. And I would talk back and forth to terrorists on, on Twitter. Uh, if you're in that community, you could see it. And this is when Twitter wasn't a, an awful experience. This is around you know, 2010, 11, 12. I would write up forecast. And then we were trying to assess what was happening in the terrorism space moving back and forth. And I would have great discussions with a smaller community of counterterrorism, people in, who are either studying terrorists or involved in counterterrorism. And you could talk back and forth. And it was a great experience. And I met a guy named Jam Berger, who you guys may know as Intel Wire, uh, on Twitter. And then we realized we lived two blocks apart. And we walked out <laughs> and, and talked to each other in person which was unusual. And, uh, but we worked on all sorts of projects together, and I would just write up these findings. And, and what I found was that if I asked people for their contributions, they wouldn't help me. But if I put out anything into the public space, they would immediately tell me what was wrong with it. And so I was like, this is fantastic. If I email people and ask them for their feedback, I wait weeks. If I put up something I know may not be quite right, they will immediately tell me how to fix it. I'm like, this is great. And, and FBI uh, interview interrogation, we call that ego, one of the things that motivates people. And I'm like, this is saving me a lot of time. I would come up with an 80% solution. I'd drop it out there. And then terrorists and terrorist sympathizers would tell me, too, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I'm on this chat room. You know, this is what they're saying. I'm like, okay, great. It's great. And then I started writing about this uh, American uh, extremist named Omar Hamami. He was from Daphne, Alabama, and he had gone and joined Al-Shabaab, uh, initially the Islamic Courts Union, but Al-Shabaab. And I worked a lot on the Horn of Africa uh, during my counterterrorism days. And so I was writing about him, and uh, J.M. Berger had also been interacting with him. He said, man, that guy reads everything you write. And I'm like, that's right, because terrorists are narcissists. 
and so are other people, by the way, on social media, but I'll just stick with terrorists for the moment. And they like to read about themselves. No one wants to be a suicide bomber if they don't have a martyrdom tape. They don't. You have to glorify these people. And the first thing that extremists want to do when they get to Iraq or Syria, at least in the early days, was take a picture or selfie or show themselves in battle in Syria and Iraq. And we would build entire databases on Excel spreadsheets of these guys are joining ISIS, these guys are joining Al-Qaeda. So I knew uh, that Omar read what I was writing, and one night I saw a signal. And when I saw that signal, I was like, this is one of Omar's friends, and they're trying to tell me what I got wrong on a blog post. And so I would engage in conversations back and forth publicly with Omar Hamami. And I just wanted him to keep talking. I knew the more he talked, the more he would discredit himself to other extremists, and the less other extremists would want to do what Omar wanted to do. Omar was on the run. But it brought up this fascinating issue about authenticity, and that's kind of where I want to go today for democracy, right? So I can talk back and forth to this terrorist, and we had very American conversations. I would talk to him about Krispy Kreme donuts because we had both grown up you know, about the same time in the South and the Midwest. We would talk about soccer. He would talk about sports or things that he missed. Uh, his wife's cooking wasn't that good. And I would say, oh, here's some Chinese food. And so you could pretty much figure out where Omar was. And others knew where he was, too. And this was what my Facebook handle initially looked like. I only knew how to do draw one character when I was a kid in art class, and that was it on the left. And so when I first did my Twitter handle, I drew it up that way. And you could even engage in comedy with these extremists. And so he was worried that I was a sock puppet. He was like, I've never really seen your face. I know you're a former FBI agent or whatever. I said, oh, yeah. I said, no, that's not my sock puppet. Here he is. And I made a sock puppet out of his sock, took a picture of it and shot it back. He thought this was hilarious. And so a terrorist and I are laughing on Twitter, other sides of the planet, back and forth. So... Facebook, as we know, saved the world. Twitter saved the world during the Arab Spring. And then within two years, what Omar was talking to me about was already happening. He would say, no, people shouldn't come here to Shabab. He was eventually killed by his own terrorist group. And he live tweeted that. He was, a, he was shot in the neck one day. He live tweeted that. You could talk back and forth to him. He then was killed uh, uh, not long after in the middle of the woods. And so... You could communicate with these extremists in what would be very routine ways. You know, it was very odd. But you could see what was sort of percolating, and he was pointing to it. There was a rift. There was social media populism in extremist circles that was overpowering the establishment, and that establishment was al-Qaeda. And he would say, post-al-Qaeda, we are looking at broad-based jihad. And guess what? That happened in less than two years, and it happened in Syria. He said, everybody should go to Syria. Don't come to Somalia. So if you fast forward just two to three years, what we saw was how social media populism could be hijacked. And what we saw was how people were choosing which information they wanted. No one was better at this than the Russian disinformation system because they had mastered it on their own people first. The Russian people have suffered from this uh, system of information annihilation, I call it, for a very, very long time. And there's some fantastic books out there that you can read about this. Uh, Soldatov in the Red Web and, uh, you know, everything is possible, nothing is real. You can see that it's your PR versus my PR. And we were mapping out the disinfo system because the disinfo system came after me. And it was trolling. I've been trolled a lot, but this system was very different. But this system isn't just a useful tool. Uh, Jay Berger, Andrew Weisberg, and I wrote it up 
just before the election. That's why I showed up to testify uh, that day in uh, March of 2017. This system, though, what was fascinating about it is not so much uh, what they did, but how easy it was for them to do, which is pitting people against each other by using overt, covert, semi-covert information, false information, manipulated truths that play to your biases. What we were witnessing wasn't something that uh, the Russian Kremlin disinformation system had invented. They were just hijacking the system that was already there that we had created. We are the ones who founded social media. We're the ones that blew it out and proliferated around the world. And now we are vulnerable to it. And they understood this because the goal of active measures, this is always what they tried to do, was use the force of politics rather than the politics of force. If I can get different groups inside your democracy fighting each other or advance my foreign policy position inside your population, then have those officials elected. You will not meet me or challenge me on the battlefield. It's a process of devolution. It's designed to break unions, to break things into smaller components so that there are no alliances that actually go against Russia, they instead go one-to-one -one against all their opponents until suddenly elected leaders show up and start advocating on behalf of the Kremlin, even though they're not part of the Kremlin. Maybe you watch the news today. So with that, what we were witnessing, this is where it comes into democracy, and, and I, I am tired of talking about the Russian disinfo system because now it is American disinformation that is the real threat to our democracy. What I have seen in the last year since I talked about that was not Russian disinfo breaking up our unions. It's American disinformation. It is American active measures that we will see in 2018. I consistently get this question asked to me, and oftentimes it's by congressmen that are concerned in their own races. Should I, should I worry about Russia knocking me out or, you know, or using dis, disinfo against me? The answer is no. You need to worry about everybody else that is duplicating this system and using it against their opponents. We've already seen this in Southeast Asia. That is a place where it's come on very strong for a couple of reasons. Lots of access technology-wise in terms of mobile devices hooked not to the internet through social media. It's not a playing field that's sort of open. It is one that's by choice and it's by design. That has already taken the place right now. And those that have been successful with it are authoritarians. It's gone in two ways. The disinfo system is either used for domestic suppression, like we see going on in Cambodia, Philippines, Myanmar, or it's used for audience distortion, manipulation, and annihilation, like we see going on in our own country. This comes from essentially where I moved to the conclusion of the book, and really what I'm looking forward is, is trolling as a service. Everyone will have their own manipulation machine. They will make their own information outlets. They will promote them. They will create real and false personas. They will use social bots that are rented. They don't need to make them. They will persistently pursue it, and they will have resources, and they will be better at it than the Russian disinfo system for two reasons. One, they'll be able to aggregate all of your personal information, data, preferences, purchases together so that they can recon audiences in the ways like a Russian disinfo system could never do. Couldn't do it. There's no way. The other thing they can do is use artificial intelligence, machine learning, advanced tech tools that no real authoritarian state has at the moment but will eventually purchase. You've already seen this a little bit. Cambridge Analytica is a, a natural occurrence for any political campaign. Many will say, why, why do we even worry about it? Why not, right? The rules of the game say what? Win. 
win at all cost because losing isn't an option whenever you're serving a customer. Those that will come to dominate this, those that can actually put all of that data together, recon it at a light speed, and then deploy it very quickly, that can bring all of your information together, all of your preferences together, will win. We've talked a lot about filter bubbles, and uh, Eli Pariser did you know, a great examination of that a few years ago. But I would offer we are in a much different state now in that it, we are in preference bubbles. It's the extension of filter bubbles because it is not the social media company's fault, it is yours. You are the one that puts yourself in the preference bubble. You choose. They are just providing you a service. You cannot participate in the service, but you won't do that because you're addicted to it. This is how you operate now. You spend a large part of your life on this. Depending on the survey, three to five hours are spent a day on mobile devices in the United States. Out of those three to five, the number one thing, apps that are used are social media apps. You spend more of your time engaging with people that are not with you than you do with people that are around you. You know the preferences and you speak to people online more than you speak to your neighbors. And so this has created a preference bubble where you are literally picking your own alternative reality. The digital tail wags the physical dog. The most impressive version of this today is the Islamic State. They were a preference bubble that overtook the Al-Qaeda establishment. Zawahiri would say, don't do this. We would never do this. Bin Laden wouldn't approve of half of the things the ISIS guys were doing, the extreme violence. They didn't care because why? Click, 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 click. I like this video. I like that. They had people, entire families going into Syria and Iraq as millions of refugees were flooding out. They believed in this alternative reality so strongly, they took their families into a war zone and were killed in droves. They believed that a fight in Kobani, a historical story that was put out on the internet and throughout social media, was where the prophecy would come back, and they were slaughtered by airstrikes in the hundreds. That is a virtual reality that became actual reality and created it. It is happening in our own country. Our virtual preferences are bringing people together and they are migrating, they are moving, they are showing up to events and they are going against their neighbors and their opponents. This comes for several reasons, really the combination of three personal factors that come together. One is confirmation bias, which we all know comes on social media. I like this, it confirms what I say, so I keep gravitating to it. The second part and really what the Russians understood about social media as a weapon is implicit bias. I like information that comes from people that look like me and talk like me. That's why the troll farm made people that look like you and talk like you. Some of the bots that we would diagnose, what were the, the words in their profiles that they use the most? God, Christian, country. That's just targeting. That's just smart targeting. It's the same way we would do advertising. The third part is once you get into these herds, you don't want to leave them. And so you'll start going along with things that you may actually not entirely agree with, but are too afraid to speak against. Or as Tocqueville would say, the tyranny of the majority. We talked about this in social capital in the 1800s. There's, you know, he would say there's nothing worse than being on the outside of a majority in America. There is nothing more paralyzing. There's nothing more suppressive. The same thing happens in your digital herd. I've seen this firsthand. NFL, take a knee, don't take a knee. Uh, you either opt in or you opt out or you sit back, right? And you go, am I supposed to? I kind of want to stand. Am I for Trump or am I for Kaepernick? You get into these debates that in reality aren't even there. That's a virtual debate. It doesn't even make sense. 
So with that, preference bubble has two parts. It's one part algorithm and it's one part you. You are picking your alternative reality. I always tell people that are like, when will the matrix take us over? When will machines take us over? No, you will volunteer to go in the matrix. You will choose it. For Americans, if it gets above 72 degrees or below 68, they start changing their environment, right? The same thing happens in social media. Block, block. I don't like this. I don't like that. I like this. Everybody else likes this. I like this then. Okay, I want to stay right here. You are seeing three dynamic changes that continue today. The first one is clickbait populism, promotion of popular content, opinions, and the personas that voice them. We would never have our current president or an advocate who changed the clemency this week before social media. It would not happen. This is essentially you get the most clicks and likes, then you set the agenda. If you please the audience, the audience will be your advocates and they will advance your cause. The second thing that is really a, a stark whenever I look at this is social media nationalism. We are not a physical nation right now in America. I know a lot more about you if I know your Twitter profile than whether you tell me you're a Democrat or a Republican or what state you're from. Those things are almost meaningless. But if you tell me your hashtags, I know exactly who you are and I know exactly what you believe in and what other people you like. If I were to build a map today, and I've kind of tried doing this a few times, I would say we're probably five social media, media nations uh, with splits in between it. The little subgroups in between each of those. Some of them overlap, some of them don't. Some even overlap in odd ways, particularly in the extreme right and left of our political spectrum. They tend to share some of the same content, which is fascinating. If they ever met in person, they might kill each other, but at least online, they are sharing and supporting each other's views. It's really strange. So this identity is more shaped by how you characterize yourself, and it's become very important to us. So important that in the physical world, we will carry around signs with hashtags on them rather than carry around flags at protests. This is a dynamic shift that's happened just in the last few years. The last part is the death of expertise. This is the belief, and it's more powerful with every generation, that as long as you have access to the Internet, you are as qualified and as smart as every other person in the world, no matter what their experience, qualifications, where they've been. In 2011 and 12, I was running surveys on the internet and it was all about crowdsourcing. You ask the crowd a question, they will give you the best answer. And so I was asking them national security questions and I was trying to use crowdsourcing to get to this. And they were wrong every single time, every single time. These were counterterrorism experts oftentimes. They missed every single one that I asked. And so I started to realize that the only real way to do this was to get around people's digital nations. And their expertise got worse when they went in this crowd, not better, because they were digitally hurting. And so I started a process called the wisdom of outliers. I deliberately would listen to what the majority was saying, and I would completely toss it out. And then I would use the outliers because usually they were most aggressive. They saw things that were occurring. They were passionate about their beliefs, and they had some sort of information, skill, education, or travel experience that made them smarter than the majority. And so we were using this essentially to say ISIS will overtake Al-Qaeda, the Trump train will overtake the GOP, and now I'm doing it to kind of see will the resistance in the blue wave really be good or bad for the Democrats, ultimately. These are all social, I'm not saying they're equal, by the way. I've had audiences go crazy, I'm not a terrorist. I'm like, I'm not saying you're a terrorist. But the Arab Spring was the first version of social media populism overtaken an establishment. 
they, it's really good for mobilization. It's not so good after they win. You can see this oftentimes because the group is named after their objective. And once their objective is achieved, they don't know how to carry on. Occupy was to occupy. They did that very well. The Arab Spring was to overthrow governments. The Islamic State was to do what? Build an Islamic State. They did that. They didn't say exactly how it was going to go. And we see it in our own politics. Lots of passion around certain hashtags, certain issues, certain key words. And then once those are achieved in terms of governance, then it gets a little tough because you say, well, what are we actually going to do, right? And that's where the physical joining, if the physical and the virtual come together, is quite powerful. That is happening today, and you're seeing it. And I'll kind of talk about it at the end. So which nation do you spend more time in? The one on the left or the one on the right? With every generation in America, we spend more time in that virtual world than we do in the physical world. This can be good and bad. It's good because maybe we have more connections, right? We can build around policy. We can do activism. We can do those sorts of things. But it's also bad because oftentimes we get in our preference bubbles and we block out the opponents. We block out the others. We don't have common dialogue. And if that continues the way it continues now, things are really, really bleak, like very bleak. And you can already see the signs of it. This was in The Economist. It was a survey, and it shows the divergence. It literally maps out the bubbles, which is pretty fascinating. And that transcendence, that, that speed at which it moves, could not have happened in a traditional way, in an analog way. To move people that quickly is very, very difficult. To go from people saying USA at the 1980 Olympics to Russia is our friend at a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville <laughs> In 20 years, is pretty remarkable, you know, to make that sort of a change. That's only possible in the social media age. It ramps things up and it makes it quicker. To get 10,000 foreign fighters to move into Syria, you could not do that in the analog era. It took a decade for, Al for the Mujahideen before they became Al-Qaeda. It took two years, tops, to get maybe double that number to Syria and Iraq before. So the power of social media is there. But the question then becomes, is this good or bad for democracy? If you look back at the late 90s when we talked about the internet, the internet was going to do what? Bring us together, right? It was by the world of Coke. Everyone, let's hug each other. We're on the internet. But we forgot the long tail doesn't just bring people to low frequency products. It also brings extremists around the world together over time or people to polls over time. Social media has had the opposite effect. It, internet brought everybody together, and social media has pushed everybody apart in their own directions, in their own preference bubbles. And so when you look at the future of it, it comes down to social capital. What makes democracy work is the third ingredient. We always have institutions. We had economic growth and development. And the third part was social capital. This is the going back to Tocqueville. This is the secret sauce of American democracy. Uh, Robert Putnam talked about it during the 90s in Bowling Alone. And there's two kinds of, of social capital, bridging and bonding. And it was the mixing of both. Bonds are great. They tend to be hierarchical. Uh, bridging's even better because it brings people to different associations. And on average, we all work it out and we get along. And it is the Coke commercial and everything goes great. Social media actually re reinforces bonding capital and breaks bridging capital. It turns out when we actually all get together on social media, we find out we don't like each other very much. We don't, right? Twitter is where you go to get yelled at by people you don't know. Facebook is where you go to get yelled at by people you do know that secretly don't like you. 
right? This is how social media works. And, and I can tell this, right? I know if I put something up and nine people, let's say I've got 100 people on Facebook that are my friends, and nine people troll me, uh, pretty good bet there were 27 others that wanted to troll me too, and they did not. They held back. Probably because they thought they might see me tomorrow at work or you know, we might bump into each other on the street. And so you can tell this. You can see it happen. Whose Facebook feed here has gotten stronger since the election? More conversations since the election. Who's gotten less conversation since the election? Man, mine is like a, I don't know, it's like tumbleweeds rolling through town now, right? It's just cats and kids. That's it, right? Cats, kids, cats, kids. Boom, boom. And why do we do that? Because we're like, man, I don't think we want to talk and tell each other what we really think anymore because we know we don't really think alike and we don't really like each other, right? So it's fascinating. I'm going to kind of conclude, but we'll, maybe we can open up to discussion about what do governments do and what do social media companies do? This is, a, you know, I get put into these boxes a lot when I'm in public conversations. People are like, what should the government do? And there are a lot of things that we can do in that space. And then the other one is, shouldn't we just destroy these social media companies? And the answer is no. The social media companies are one of our greatest innovations. And it's amazing what we're able to do. I mean, I think YouTube is one of the most impressive things in the history of mankind, right? Think you can watch so much thing going on around the world. But what is their responsibility in this space? Because the truth is governments will govern physical nations, but who will govern virtual nations? And that will be social media companies. We are already to the point where social media companies not even have more power because of all the information they have, but their terms of service hold more value on their social media nations than it does on the real world. In some weird way, whether they like it or not, they're now in charge of how we conduct ourselves a good portion of the day. Three to five hours a day, they're telling us how we will behave. They are our new laws. They are our new institutions. Whether they like it or not and whether we like it or not, they have that, that power over how we will behave into going into the future. So I will give you the two scenarios of how it goes because I think you asked me that, right, Justin? So I'll give you the bad scenario first. We don't make it. We don't make it at all. And I'll, I'll tell you how the, here's one way it could play out. If the Democrats win in 2020, do not be surprised if in 2024 or 2028, there is a major political figure in the United States that runs under the platform that once elected, they will break up the United States of America. It is already there. There are these small grassroots movements, but do not be surprised. They won't win. I don't think they will actually win under that platform, but what if they get 10% of the vote? And what if they get 10% of the vote, but all of their vote comes from three or four states in the United States? Arizona is one I would tell you to study as a case study. That would be devastating to this country, even a loss, even if it doesn't come about. Because we're seeing people, seeing people in mass say, I literally don't want to be part of your country anymore. And that's where this ultimately comes to. We're not the United States of America anymore. We're the divided states of America. This is also met by physical and economic change. No more multilateral, everything bilateral. Everything moving to state-to-state -state relations or state rules. Let's let the states set their own rules. Maybe they don't even need to pay into the federal system or the federal system doesn't pay them back. That's how it happens. It happens much slower. It's not the, the movie version, you know, where a Michael Bay film and there's like some sort of raid and helicopters. It's not like that. This will happen slowly, very slowly. And you won't even feel it. It's a boiling the frog. 
Here's the good news story. We have seen physical activism like we have not seen maybe in our country's history, right? I don't even know if the 60s, 1960s compared to what we've seen the last two years. So the good news is we start to value physical relationships more than virtual relationships. So it's good that your conversations are cats and kids on social media. And it's not about politics all the time. And we start coming together and deciding what we really believe in and what we fight for in the next two elections, let's say, are more about, hey, let's actually restore our institutions. And we've seen the people speak, and we have a new wave of elected officials, and we're going to come together, uh, and this is successful. It goes either way. And it really is up to us in this room, and it's up to everybody in America. Do they want to set between 72 and 68 degrees until the power just turns off one day and you're overrun by the horde? Or do you want to take a little bit of time out to get to know your neighbors and talk to them or fight for the issues that you believe in, both online and on the ground, and, and come together and make actual changes that are good for society? Tocqueville actually predicted this, ironically. He said, you will start to you know, essentially focus so much on the present, the, I think he called it the present pleasures, that you block out what's obviously coming over the horizon, which is a despot that does not look like a despot and overruns you. And suddenly what you've enjoyed so much isn't there anymore and you don't know how you got there. So in that conclusion, it's 50-50. I don't wanna stop and just be negative because I'm the guy who's a terrorism analyst, so I'm always focused on the negative, but there is positive out there and it really comes down to us. Thank you. So uh, you didn't give us which one you think is going to happen, um, but, but could I ask you for a few more? I've been asking all the panels this, a little bit more green shoots. What, what are you optimistic about? What are you optimistic about looking at these two scenarios and everything in between? Um, am I on? I'm on, right? So let me do the Mike Pence real, real quick. <laughs> let me. <laughs> one of the funniest videos I've seen in a long time. So, um, here's what I'm optimistic about, and I am uh, optimistic in some ways. Uh, the physical activism. I do feel like uh, friends that I thought were very angry at me during the election. This uh, I'll go personal and then bigger. So people that were upset at me uh, going in the election day is, uh, for political reasons, have reengaged with me and kind of realized we were in this emotional battle that really wasn't about us, you know. And at the same point, on the virtual level, the online space, uh, the social media companies have reacted over the last year. I can tell you that even with our institutions, I'm going to use the Senate Intel Committee. I testified four times in the last year. I had a great experience with the Senate Intel Committee uh, in terms of interacting with them, both Republicans and Democrats. If you look at the election uh, protection bill that was Harris and Lankford uh, that came together, they are both great. And I've seen them uh, in person, physically, talking to each other, and I was like, oh my God, this is like how they wrote it up in the West Wing, right? And you get excited. And I'm like, they're working together, and a bill came out, and so that, I'm excited. House, eh, it's not gonna work <laughs> out, right? House is where the tribes, you know, come to, to fight it out. And so, but that's good, that's an institution. I also look at like the courts, and I'm like, okay, that's great. Also with the social media companies, I was very frustrated with them. Over the years, I had tried to engage with them either about terrorism or the Russian disinfo and kind of had just gotten a brick wall, you know. 
But since the election, I do feel like they've hired a lot of good people uh, that I've worked with in the past in other contexts. Uh, they are moving uh, and trying to come up with ideas. I even think in the case of Facebook, while they missed big time going in, if you look for the French election, they were there pretty quickly. I think they are tackling very heavy on the Russia disinfo and even putting in policies and regulations and trying to improve terms of service. And even Twitter, who's been the slowest and I was the most frustrated with in recent weeks, you know, have tried to put new community rules in place uh, to reduce trolling, essentially. And I think that's good. All of that, I think, is really good. So there is some positive out there. There's negative, but I think those are all positives. We had a question last night in a discussion um, uh, around what the U.S. government is doing to uh, combat misinformation abroad, um, where uh, there was some concern about the U.S its own behavior in terms of pushing message or interfering in others' politics or uh, you know, generally um, using propaganda uh, methods itself. How, obviously, there's a tension. You know, uh, there's, there's offense and defense to some extent. Where do you think we are on that from your experience? Yeah. So if you really are into that part, Chapter 8 is a very deep dive just on my experience with uh, uh, counter-influence, you would say. Uh, I have never in any time in working uh, by, with, or through the U.S. government, seen anything as evil as what Russia just pulled off and continues to pull off in disinfo. Uh, I never saw people going out and creating false personas and trying to manipulate audiences to hate other people in the audience space. Uh, most of our counter-influence was focused on extremists uh, and terrorists. Uh, and it failed. It was terrible. In fact, if you looked at the expenditures of the U.S. government to try and counter uh, extremists, you would think we actually made more because we spent billions and we got no gain in it. Uh, and we were trying to do democracy promotion, which I think is everything I've seen is democracy promotion. Uh, and I've had this uh, moral equivalence, you know, sort of thing come up in talks before. Not only have I never seen, I would never want the United States of America to create false personas to try and influence a foreign population, hack into hundreds of foreign uh, people, dump their private information out onto the internet. I would be uh, saddened and disgusted if they did. I would also tell you I don't think they're organized enough or competent enough to do it. Um, so uh, the great, you know, the, the great conundrum of our time is the deep state is so smart to do this, but before that was so incompetent to, that they couldn't do anything. So. What I would tell you is uh, it's always good to push on your elected officials. I've never witnessed it. And I would tell you that, uh, by and large, my experience across U.S. government was a deep fear, particularly, of influencing Americans. It stopped almost every good uh, counter-influence proposal I saw was the fear there would be an American in the audience space, and we would not pursue things because we were afraid there were Americans in the audience mm -hmm. space, particularly during the Obama years when we were I mean, the Bush years, it was, social media just wasn't there yet, but I, I never, there was always deep fear of what do we do if we accidentally encounter an American in this audience we didn't know who they were. And I think that should stay that way. I literally think we should not um, engage in counter-influence until we figure out what we believe in. We don't know right now. You cannot punch back uh, if you don't know what you believe in as a country. We don't. Right now, um, our administration is repeating exactly what Russia is saying, so I don't know what our counter message would be. So we can't do it in the disinfo space. And then in the extremism space, we no longer are doing democracy promotion and human rights promotion. We're literally rewriting 
uh, things off the government. So I, I don't know how we would counter extremists at this point. And it's better to not do anything at all than to get out there under a false flag. One of the things uh, Sam Woolley at the Oxford uh, Internet uh, Institute um, has pointed out that um, you know his, he, one of the things that keeps him up at night, it's not really the Russians or other state actors, but the fact that the Chinese haven't yet really engaged in um, this kind of disinformation activity in English or Western circles right. uh, for the most part. Um, do you see that as part of the future? Are you concerned about that? No, uh, for a few reasons. One, uh, and this is just geopolitically, China views us very differently than Russia views us. Russia has a very zero-sum game for Russia to ascend, or you know, Putin believes for Russia to ascend, uh, that America must descend. Uh, China, I think, doesn't care. They know we're going to be indebted to them, and so they're just like, oh, whatever. And they, they just sort of push forward. They don't, their influence is also more uh, sphere uh, they're more interested in Southeast Asia and their broader sphere in Asia. And they also, ironically, use a more positive approach. So some of the disinfo that they put out is more saying how great the government is. Rather than going, you suck, you suck, they're like, no, we're great, we're great. You know, that's where they invest, which is a different disinformation or misinformation. It's about promotion. And so it's different. My suspicion is that they use it um, more to suppress political dissidents. Uh, more to rally their own nationalism internally. And then a third, if they do go overseas, is going to be more in Southeast Asia. So they might try and run the disinfo plan that we've seen, you know, sort of pushed, but to tip an election, you know, in, a, in another country closer to home. If, I don't know what their interests are in the United States per se, or if they have the skills to do it, language being a big factor. I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to let uh, a couple questions from the floor. We have to use this mic, so if you want to ask a question, we're only going to be able to do two or three. Please come and kind of line up here uh, by the light if you'd like. Um, uh, there are a lot of people in this room who are technologists. So we've got computer scientists, designers, um, folks who are uh, audio engineers, people who actually know how to make these deep fakes and the rest. What should these people be working on to help prepare for the future, uh, and what should uh, they, they prioritize? How do you ensure authenticity and still protect anonymity? Is the big uh, thing of everything I've worked on with social media. We always want to be able, uh, for someone who's being oppressed or someone who's being uh, uh, pushed in one direction politically or through violence, to be able to have a place and a place to speak. That's what we believe in. But you need to be able to verify that and at the same point know uh, that someone will use it for a bad reason. I can tell you this, the inspiration from my perspective, I, I think in Russia for using the disinfo system abroad was the Arab Spring. They looked at the Arab Spring and they said, holy cow, you mean we don't have to invade anything? They'll just do it for us? Like they'll just topple the guy? That's, that's what they were already thinking that way naturally, but I'm sure when they looked at it, they were like, okay, this is the Americans, and they're going around with their democracy. But at the same point, they're like, you know what we could do with this? And so remember, if I don't want, the other thing is, I don't want technologists who are brilliant making great technology to think like I do. I think very negatively, to be honest with you. And if you read the book, you'll kind of get this. Not in a, like, I'm a negative person, but whenever I see something, in chapter one, I talk about prank phone calls. That's how I got started with the disinfo. And so I was really good at making prank phone calls or doing practical jokes. But that is social engineering. So I think having good uh, technical engineers matched with social engineers is the way forward. We did this in cyber. 
So my old FBI boss, I went to work with him in the financial industry, and it's pairing a threat, we call it a threat intelligence, with an incident responder in cyber because it's more checklist and controls on one side, but on the other side, it's like, how do I get the system to work? This is what's gonna happen in social media. They're gonna put in a lot of controls that are very good now, and manipulators will look at those terms of service and they're gonna dance right inside of them. Or if you push me off of forgeries on this anonymous platform, I'm going to make another platform where it's just anonymous you know, forgeries that I'm pasting. There are things that they want to achieve. You need a social engineer to figure out what they want to achieve and put them with the technologists. I, I think that's the better way to go because I want all the brilliant people that do technology to make something cool so I can use it, right? I want it to be innovative. I want the industry to move forward. So I think it's more we do vulnerability assessments now with malware. What's a social engineering vulnerability assessment for social media? Because I can tell you, sometimes I get these apps, I'm like, you know what I could do to my buddies with this? Like, I could totally yeah. with them. So I, I mean, I, you know, that was a big focus of our course this year was trying to bring in that idea of, of critique and social vulnerability, political vulnerability, into thinking about the design process. So um, thank you for that message. We're going to ask, have a couple questions here. Uh, Baron, would you like to come and ask the first one? Thank you very much for your comments. Uh, you talked about the role of government and the role of the social media networks. I wonder if you think there's a role for traditional media and journalism, and if so, what can we be doing? Yes. I, I was very fortunate to get to talk to uh, a lot of foreign editors at a conference recently, and I could see their sort of loss of, like, what do we do? And the idea was we need to fact check better. better. You know, I hear that a lot. But I think that the return on that is so marginal. Like, Good newspapers are already fact-checking really well. I've, I've worked with them. You know, they fact-check my stuff really well. My book editors do. So I, I threw a few things out to them. One that I've always pushed, and I, I get pushback from some audiences on it, and other people just say this is a waste of time. People are stupid. It won't work. But I, I disagree, which is information consumer reports. So to help, how do you help good filters that are trying to provide facts? And so part of the challenge and why implicit bias works on social media is you trust your friend sharing you something. So you don't know the source. The source isn't the source. The source is your friend or family or somebody you're connected to. And this is what the Russians are brilliant about in terms of their disinfo. They knew that. So the way they got RT to spread and spread so successfully on YouTube was to send it through their reporters and their producers because you didn't really know where it was coming from. And so that's a smart strategy. In fact, all newspapers are doing that today. How do you thwart that? Well, you don't want to repress freedom of speech and freedom of the press, but it all comes down to awareness. Why, don't, why doesn't everybody read the National Enquirer every morning and pick it up at the newsstand? Why not? How do you know? How did you know when you went to the grocery store not to pick that the aliens did not land in New Mexico? How did you know that? Well, you're like, well, sometimes they get it right. They have great stories. They do get right, but sometimes they don't. A rating is the way to, to beat that. So I push consumer reports for information. Uh, when we had bad products that we didn't understand the source of, we wanted to know how do we keep our kids safe, uh, it's toys or, or different devices. We've depended on ratings, but that is confirmation bias aggregated right now. So the way to do that is to create an independent agency, I think, that goes through and does like a sweeps and rather than trying to fact check every single article article that comes out, you give a rating to the information source. 
And you do that over an enduring period, you actually have the same old matrix that used to be in consumer reports, where the consumer can go to and click on it. It's opt-in or opt-out, however the social media platforms do it, but they all have to use it. So when it shows up in your social media feed, or it shows up on the internet search, there's an icon, and it measures two things. Fact versus fiction during the radium period, and opinion versus reporting. This is the other thing consumers struggle with, and I struggle with, is, is this reporting or is this opinion? And I think this helps for news outlets. News outlets right now, their biggest challenge is, do I report the news or am I the news? And this is the big challenge is, can you support reporting where it's not about your reporter, but it's about that. If you look at a lot of the citizen journalism out there, especially used in disinfo, it's be the news. And, it, and that is edutainment, as I call it, education and entertainment sort of combined. Next question, Ray. Mr. Watson, very glad you could come today. Uh, quick question. We get a double-edged sword from our readers on our website. On one hand, they ask the question about the government getting involved in some aspect with regards to social media and regulation. But then they turn around and they look at Mark Zuckerberg's hearings. And they look at some of the questions that Congress asked. Yeah. And they're very concerned about whether Congress is really up on 1998 technology, let alone 2018 technology. How did you get that from that hearing? I don't know. <laughs> it's very uneven, right? Some of the congressmen are, are really good. You know, you can, you're like, OK, they get it. Some of them, you're like, Oof. Which ones? <laughs> You know, I'll give you one, though, that would surprise you is uh, Kennedy from Louisiana. If you remember, he boiled the question down to the essential question, you know, so that the public could understand it and social media could understand it. So whoever prepped him or however they did it, did it really well. I think Harrison Langford and uh, uh, Warner, when I was at the Senate, they all are very deep-dived into it. Um, so that's not surprising. I'm nervous. I, I understand why social media companies would push back against regulators and, and regulation because who knows what you're going to get and, and how to enforce it. And I've seen some even from Europe. Europe is really leading on this. They're the one that will impose the regulations that social media is adapting to. And I've seen some that talks about the spread. You know, you should hit certain requirements. I'm like, I don't think that'll even make a dent and it's burdenous, you know, on social media. So what should government do? I think there are some very basic things they can do around data privacy and information security. The Honest Ads Act, for example, is a very simple legislative move that basically Facebook just decided they would do it because no one can believe we're not doing it, right? So there's very simple bare bones things that we could say, much the way Kennedy presented his questions. Would you want your data you know, given to somebody else? Are you telling people where you stayed in a hotel last night? Okay, this is where the rule is at that the government should be implementing. Um, this is how long you can store information. This is the third party, you know, we do third party information security assessments in cyber. We should be doing that with social media that you are on the hook. If you come and scrape 50 million people's social media profiles, then you are legally liable for what happens to that if you lose control of it. You know, this is for regulation, third party information. That, I think, is good. But I am also somewhat sympathetic with social media companies that they need to figure out terms of service that maintains the trust for their platform. Because they always push for revenue right up to the point where suddenly the consumers don't want to be there because they don't trust the platform. Okay. Next question, please. Thank you for a very interesting uh, talk. I would like to ask you. Right, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's OK. 
As you very eloquently mentioned, the Russian disinformation was one thing, but now we are in a completely different place, which right. is even more dangerous. But uh, this Russian disinformation campaign and active measures possess a f possesses a foundational position in this whole imbroglio that we live through. I would like to ask you to address, since this is an event about, about fake news, to address three claims that you've made the, on your US Senate testimony about the topic that two have been proved to be completely debunked and one unverified. The first one, very briefly, it's that RT and uh, Rastudain Sputnik uh, essentially went public with a story about uh, terrorists uh, overcoming a US army base, the Interleague army base, which was completely debunked because the RT reports were based on primal sources in Turkey. Basically, the whole Turkic press have been so reporting on the issue. Yeah, can I go issue? one by one just so? Yeah, let's, let's address that one first. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. I agree with you. The RT and Sputnik stories were about the protests that were at the base. Yeah, there were actual protests. security, yeah. right? The story we published at the Daily Beast is what I was mm -hmm. referring to, which was talking about the disinfo system is an, is an entirety, which was RT and Sputnik news stories came out, and then there were bots that were promoting the story and characters that were discussing. So that's the first one. Go ahead with the second one. Thank you. Oh, that's way better. <laughs> the second you, and can I just say, if you go to the Daily Beast story, I, there is a full two-page mm -hmm. discussion mm -hmm. of that. The second one is uh, your claim that uh, the Trump campaign uh, took some talking points from a Sputnik article, again, about uh, campaign finances and uh, a whole set of baseless allegations, essentially. But this Sputnik article were, was scrapped after 20 minutes because uh, the journalist right. recognized that it was a mistake. He lost his job. And this whole media campaign was based on a Newsweek article by Kurt Eichenwald. So this was, again, a non-story. And the third one, not to... No, can I no. go to oh, one yeah. by one? Yeah. I was asked a question in the Senate. Do you remember what the question was? I remember the claim. I don't remember the question. Okay. So the question that I was asked was, why does this work? This was Senator Lankford. I said it was because Donald Trump, famously, I said, uses Russian active measures against his opponents. My point was, if you don't know where fact and fiction was, and this is where I concluded, then we don't know. So the article that you had in question, I read an NPR story that said, you know, did Donald Trump use Russian propaganda? Before that, I talked about Paul Manafort actually citing the Enterlich case as, this is evidence of a terrorist attack in Turkey. My point was, there is so much confusion about fact and fiction and that the president oftentimes does that. So later, I think you're saying uh, that the story came down or not. For me, it doesn't matter if the story shows up at Sputnik after the president says it or if they take it the other way. The idea is if our government leaders are using propaganda and false information and putting it out from a public stage, we cannot have public debate and we cannot have democracy. I see. Uh, and to sum up, 
the third part of my question is uh, you have uh, on the one hand you mentioned your very big and your great experience with extremists online but on the other hand uh, you published an article uh, defending uh, the group Ahrar oh, al-Sham. I'm so glad you brought this one. Bring it buddy. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you. So I would like to ask how on the one hand uh, some extremists you know, are bad but on the other hand years, you man. defend them online and also you claim that you were target the target of an big trolling and harassment right. campaign against you, which is, again, unverifiable going through your tweets and the comments so on the article. I'll just ask you also just to identify yourself for the record as well. My name is uh, Elias Lathatos. Uh, I'm from uh, Columbia Journalism School and uh, the Grey Zone Project. Great. Great. Thank you. So, if you go to my Wikipedia page today, you will see a controversy from 2014, right? And so that controversy is that uh, I'm a terrorist supporter, right? Uh, you would like me to confirm uh, your claims of the article? I mean, it was just, a pretty big article. Just wondering. So it's interesting because that was the first time I got into the Russian disinfo space. People always wonder, how do you go from extremist to Russian disinfo? Well, that's how it was. I wrote an article with two colleagues. I will leave their name out of it so I can just be the one that the focus is on. But the idea was, we were talking about soft power in Syria at the time, if you remember, this was the Obama administration, we were not deploying troops to Syria. So we offered, hey, if we are not going to do anything here, why don't we try and use more diplomacy or negotiation with Islamist groups to try and peel them away from Al-Qaeda? We knew Al-Qaeda was trying to infiltrate these groups. And in fact, you could see that online as well, but that's probably unverifiable too, right? So in that context though, that is when I started getting trolled on social media. That foreign affairs article is what brought it to my attention. It's also on my Wikipedia page today. Now, the claims were this is a terrorist group or an extremist group, or Rar al-Sham has definitely gone in a direction I'm not excited about since I wrote that article, but I was trying to offer a non-drone, non-military aspect to that situation because I was seen as the pro-drone neocon hawk during the Obama administration that wanted to go kill everybody. So that's why we went with that foreign affairs article. So I stand by the article in the time. I can't account for everything Arar al-Sham has done since that point. But yes, that is essentially when I got onto the trolling. And many of those accounts, I should have brought it here, were part of the bots that we tracked that led to a petition on the White House website known as Alaska Back to Russia. And that is where we got onto them was through that article and exactly through that trolling campaign. But this trolling campaign isn't there. I mean, that was my question. I'm going to have to ask you to just take, maybe take it up after we've given quite a lot of I'll time. I'll meet to you afterwards. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Sal, if you don't mind. Last question. We'll have to make it very brief. Should, um, <laughs> should cryptocurrency be used, uh, viewed as a uh, community? Yes. And is it, is it a community that's seeing itself uh, rising above? nationality and government and is it also a, an aspect of um, wealth con concentration yeah. and an allure to weaponizing wealth? So this is a one where it, will it become the currency of social media nations, right? It's ungoverned, you know, by uh, political institutions. And so 
I, I've listened to a couple of podcasts about it. I don't trust it, obviously, because I don't know who has it. I don't know where my money's at. Um, but it's interesting because when I watch it, it has all the problems of trust, you know, that I worry about. But at the same point, it's got the anonymity like we saw with social media. And so I'm always struggling with, do I want to support cryptocurrency, which could be beneficial to people who don't have banking systems. I remember doing research in Kenya, and we had, we had given a driver money. He had been shut down. So the next time we gave him cell phone minutes, because that he could actually use. That's cryptocurrency in a way. And so which way does it go? I don't trust cryptocurrency. And I also feel like it's one of those things that's been great so far but it's something that aids all criminals who want to do illicit business around the world. And if something goes wrong, who's going to get my money? Like, how do we regulate it? And so it's interesting. I, I, I talked to one of my colleagues who's an FBI agent. He really is into cryptocurrency until he had like a crisis and was like, I just can't trust this thing. Like, I don't know where to go or how it's governed. So maybe that comes around, but I don't feel like over time, both for that reason and the economic or uh, environmental issues with the energy that's required, that it's a sustainable way to do things ultimately. But but as a meme, as a meme, it's a meme factory, right. and and I, I I think we need to look at it from all viewpoints as a meme factory, and maybe it's a it's a it's a it's a meme to be looked at in terms of how we can um, understand this dynamic of mean factories and how we're going to live with them. Yeah, I, they're going to be around, right? I mean, yeah. the more we're connected. What I also wonder about, though, is you're seeing a lot of nation states trying to create their own digital currencies, Venezuela. essentially. Venezuela, yeah. Yeah, and so they understand the value in that. And if so, if we're breaking down global unions, how does a cryptocurrency stay? Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, how does it stay and become valid if we're breaking all unions around the world. That I don't know. Probably out of my area too. No, I'm just as an economist. Clint Watson, I want to thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Clint Watts, a former FBI special agent, U.S. Army officer, and a leading cybersecurity expert who just authored the book Messing with the Enemy: Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers terrorists, Russians, and fake news. You can learn more about the Fake News Horror Show at fakenewshorrorshow.org and follow us on Twitter at NYC Media Lab. Thanks for listening.